This is They Create Worlds, episode 74, The Japanese PC Industry. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. In an unofficial three-parter, we bring part three of Japan. We started talking with the birth of the arcade industry. Then we went into those console thingies. Now we have to bring it full circle with computers in Japan. Well, it is a developed nation, Jeff. They did have, and still do have, computers over there. Well, yes, but you don't really think of it, especially during this time period, of them having computers that we would relate to outside of Japan. We've mentioned before in other episodes about how Japan's specific computer ecosystem was singularly unique compared to everywhere else in the world. And it was only later on that the whole computer ecosystem really homogenized into the IBM clone PC thing. We've talked about how in Britain they had the ZX Spectrum that was really a uniquely British product. In the United States, you had more the Commodore 64, though that didn't become as prevalent. And I believe in Japan, the NEC brand of computers was pretty prevalent. Yes, I would say they were, uh, in the end, the most dominant maker of personal computers. The other usual suspects like Sharp and Hitachi and Fujitsu and the like also experimented in that area. And some of them put out some very significant machines at various points in history, though. We're really going to be limiting our look at this industry to the period up to about 1985, which is a period of time when NEC is largely the dominant company with, of course, the MSX standard that we've mentioned before also sneaking in there. The reason that we stop there is it's kind of the end of the beginning of this Japanese computer industry. Like in the United Kingdom, like in the United States, it starts very much as a hobbyist kind of industry. It starts with enthusiasts learning about computers, playing around with computers, creating games on computers, somehow managing to get said games published, and creating this flourishing hobbyist ecosystem that then slowly professionalizes. The difference between the Japanese market and these Western computer game markets is that at the moment it gets professional, which is roughly 1985, and we'll explain why, of course, in the episode, why that's a good stopping point. The moment it's just starting to get professional is also the moment that the Famicom is starting to take over everything. So in the United States, you had a console market and a computer game market that were kind of existing in parallel to each other, where one was kind of serving younger and more action-hungry individuals and the other was serving kind of older, more cerebral individuals. In the United Kingdom, as we just discussed in our Arcade Adventure episode and have discussed before that as well, you didn't have a console ecosystem, so you had the home computers being the prime mover for these action-y games. In Japan, 
you had kind of everything, whether you were a action fiend or a more cerebral fiend, you kind of had everything move on to consoles with just very few exceptions. And so just as it is reaching its most professional point is also the point where it's starting to slowly lose relevance. So by the time you do have an IBM PC standard in Japan that at least bears some resemblance to what's going on in the United States, not counting the language barrier, by then all you really have left are genres that aren't going to find a home on consoles very easily, which uh, a lot of it is hentai, though not all of it. And uh, a lot of it is visual novels and stuff like that, that for the for a long time didn't really translate well to the West. Once Phoenix Wright came along, there's been a bit of an uptick in interest in visual novels in the West. But generally speaking, that's not the kind of thing that was popular over here. So as a result, for the most part, Japanese computer games, games that were primarily computer games, didn't really make it to the United States in the beginning because the ecosystem was so different. And in the end, because the interests were so different. But as we'll see, the kind of primordial foundational Japanese computer game industry had a huge impact on how the console industry in Japan developed as well, which means it had a huge impact on the worldwide industry. We've talked about that already in part with all we've talked about with JRPGs, which we've done twice. We did a origin of the JRPG episode, and we also did a Square Enix episode that revisited some of that same ground. That's one of the bigger parts of it. But we want to take a kind of broader look at how this industry came to be, plus sneak a few RPG updates in even since new information has come out since we did those episodes back in the day. All right. Sounds good. To start with, how did computers really get introduced into Japan and you start getting hobbyists wanting to take advantage of this? Yes. So there's two things that happened. First, you did have a small number of American-made computers infiltrating the Japanese market. In the same way that you had early computers entering Britain, you had the same problem, which is that these computers were very expensive. Apple, from its very beginning, was controlled by very ambitious and very business-savvy people. I'm not talking about Steve Jobs here, but I'm talking about Mike Markula, who was brought in as the early investor and early business guru for the company that had been at Intel. So they were expanding internationally quite early in their history. So they were getting into Europe early. They were getting into the Far East early. By the late 1970s, early 1980s, you were seeing some Apple computers in Japan. The other company is Commodore. Commodore, as we may recall, before it was a computer company, was a calculator company. Their primary business was in calculators. In the 1970s, during the calculator wars, Japanese companies were at the forefront of calculators. They were making chips and they were making whole calculators. So as Jack Trammell was in the calculator business, he, of course, had a Commodore Japan. He had a presence in Japan before he got into computers because they were there for the calculator stuff. So the Commodore PET also gets into Japan fairly early, and uh, so does the VIC-20. So on the one hand, you have a few products infiltrating Japan, and then on the other hand, you have a small number of Japanese individuals that happen to have some connection to the United States or make some trip to the United States right in this primordial period and get exposed to some of this computer stuff just as it's starting up in the United States, 
and then want to carry some of that experience back to Japan. So these are kind of two parallel forces that are going on, and we're going to look at both of them here as we uh, proceed. Let's start with what we're all familiar with, Commodore, Apple. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Commodore had the bigger presence, I think it's fair to say. So their computers were getting into department stores. Uh, the Saibu department store in Tokyo had a very big, I don't know how big it was, but comparably big computer section, for instance, largely with Commodore products. Yash Terakura, who is the Commodore engineer in Japan, was actually actively seeking individuals that could make more software for the company, not just for release in Japan, but in, for release in the United States as well. A lot of these early computer enthusiasts, rather than being high school students in Japan, they were college students, usually rather poor college students. So there were two ways that they tended to have access to computers. They either were part of a computer club at their university. This is the period we're talking late 1970s when even in the United States, computer science programs, if your school even had a computer science program, was not in any way concentrating or focusing on microcomputers. It was all still big institutional computing. So you wouldn't be learning about these microcomputers in class, but enthusiast clubs, which are a big part of the social life in high school and college in Japan, were forming around these new computers. And some of them might be able to wrangle a computer that everyone can share that they keep in the club room and make stuff on. The other way a lot of these people would learn how to fool around with computers is they would actually go to department stores like Saibu, and they would play with the display models, and they would program on the display models. In Japan, a microcomputer is called a MICON. M-A-I-C-O-N. It's slang short for microcomputer. Even with the language difference, you can kind of see where that comes from. So a person that would not have their own computer, but would kind of bum around wherever they could to use computers, was called a Nikon, N-A-I-C-O-N, which essentially meant tribe with no computer, the Nikon Zoku. So it was a little pun, (laughs) Mikon Nikon. No relation to the camera company, I imagine. No, no, that's N I K O N. <laughs> this is N A I C O N. It's a play on uh, on the word Micon. But you can obviously see where you can get the confusion there mm-hmm. with the way you pronounce it. Sure. So there were a lot of people that did this, and one very uh, interesting person that did this was a college student named Satoru Iwata. You may have heard of him. Yeah. This is how Satori Wada got his start programming, was going to the cyber department store in the computer section and just typing in programs and fooling around with them. And of course, the programs weren't saved. I mean, they'd power off the computers, wipe the computers, whatever. I mean, they didn't have hard drives. We're talking cassette-based systems here. You know, he'd load up his program into memory, and of course, it would be gone once the computer was turned off. So every time he came in and wanted to fool around, he had to load in his programs again. But this is how Satoru Iwata learned how to program. And of course, he became a very skilled programmer. He ends up getting in with a bunch of guys that are working in computer hardware called HAL Laboratories. And he's the only programmer at HAL Laboratories when he's hired because it's a hardware company. And then, of course, over time, they develop a relationship with Nintendo and become a second party of Nintendo. And of course, uh, 
Iwata-san becomes the, the president of Nintendo, but it all started as being one of these Nikon. He was one of several individuals that Yash Terakura recruited to make games for Commodore. So a lot of the arcade conversions and whatnot on the VIC-20, and I think on the PET as well, were actually made by Satoru Iwata and a few other college students that were in a similar position to him that wanted greater access to computers, that wanted to learn how to do stuff on computers. And Tarakura-san gave them an outlet to do that. And obviously, in the case of uh, Iwata-san, that paid off big time. (laughs) Definitely. So that's one way that this is going on. That's kind of the Commodore side. Apple was selling their computers through authorized dealers to computer shops that were authorized to carry Apple products. Sort of like Best Buy today. (laughs) Yes. And right, these were not stores that had to exclusively carry Apple products. They could carry other products, but they weren't going through big retailers like the Saibu department store. They were going through smaller computer shops that were attracting enthusiasts and selling the stuff through there. One of these computer stores was StarCraft. We just talked in the Broderbund episode about Nakazawa and StarCraft, the company that Broderbund partnered with to bring over a bunch of games to the West that were created by uh, bright young Japanese programmers. StarCraft was a computer store, first and foremost. You know, it always amazes me just how interconnected this entire industry is. (laughs) Indeed. Another one of these computer stores was called Computerland Tachikawa. And like StarCraft, Computerland Tachikawa decided to start creating games, publishing games as well, and it published them under the name Falcom. Nihon Falcom being a very uh, prominent Japanese computer game company still is today. Most famous for the uh, E-series, as well as, more recently, the uh, Trails in the Sky uh, very elaborate story-driven RPGs. So this is the other side of things. Just like Commodore is attracting people to program for them from these kind of Nikon, you have StarCraft, you have Nihon Falcom. They are selling computers, and they want to have software to go with their computers, and they go out to this hobbyist crowd. So Tony Suzuki, who made Alien Rain, which was that really great Galaxian clone that Broderboon sold and was its first big hit. Tony Suzuki was one of these people that patronized StarCraft, in which Nakazawa signed on to create games for him. At Nihon Falcom, at uh, this Computerland Tachikawa, there was an auto mechanic by the name of Yoshio Kia, someone that we've talked about before in the context of RPGs, very important creator, who was taking an interest in these computers and was learning how to program. And so, Falcom had him and a couple of other people create games for them. These people aren't employees. These people are just enthusiasts that want to learn how to program. And if they're going to make these games, they might as well sell them. And these computer stores give them the outlet they need to sell them. So that's one arm of this. Another arm that's coming in at the same time is a slightly more professional industry that's beginning to develop around a couple of these people that I mentioned that actually go to the United States 
for one reason or another, and are actually seeing the beginning of microcomputers in the United States and coming back to Japan and wanting to get involved in that as well. The most prominent of these individuals is a guy named Yuji Kudo. Yuji Kudo is quite a character. He had a ridiculous, almost childlike love of trains. Grew up on Hokkaido, which is the northernmost of the main Japanese islands, and I think, I don't know if it's the most rural, but I mean, it's, it's more rural. It's uh, a little poor. It's further away from the major centers of Tokyo and, and Osaka because it's on the, the northernmost island. I think he did grow up, I mean, not necessarily in poverty, but he grew up a, a little poorer. And there was a train that came through town on, on a regular route, and he loved that train. He learned a lot about trains, and he learned that the locomotive, the type of locomotive that came through his town, was called a Hudson. I think you can see where this is going. Maybe. So he was an entrepreneurial sort. While he was still in university in 1967, he established a company called Hudson Productions, named for his favorite locomotive. It really was an obsession. I mean, more so than your average person. It was uh, kind of a photography store. He would sell the work of photographers. He would buy photos from photographers and then, then sell them on to other people. That was the business. Another passion that he had besides trains was ham radio. He really got into ham radio in the early 1970s when there was a real craze for that kind of thing. The photo business eventually fell apart. It went bankrupt in 1973. But in that same year, he decided to follow his passion for ham radio by creating Hudson Company Limited, once again named for his favorite locomotive, which was involved in the selling of ham radio equipment and similar types of electronics. I think some Western sources conflate these two businesses, and they call Hudson both a photography business and a ham radio business. But they were actually two separate companies, both named Hudson, both run by Yuji Kudo that did different things. So he's in on the whole electronics business and on the hobbyist business, hobbyist electronics. So he's keeping track of what's going on in the United States because he's getting kind of the hobbyist electronics magazines in the United States. So as the first wave of computer hobbyists in the U.S. takes shape around the Altair computer in 1975, he knows that this is coming, and he knows that microprocessors have arrived, and he has uh, some idea of the potential of this equipment as hobbyist equipment. So always being of a somewhat adventurous spirit, he decides to do something that most people would not do. He decides that he's going to fly to the United States, he's going to fly to Silicon Valley, and he's going to check out this whole computer thing himself. He's going to see what all the fuss is about. He meets at Stanford University a fellow named Harry Garland. Harry Garland was very important in the early hobbyist movement. He was part of the whole homebrew computer club thing. And he founded a company, or rather co-founded, a company called Chromemco, which in this kind of Wild West period of hobbyists before kind of the Trinity, kind of the TRS-80 and the Apple II and whatnot took over, was one of the big computer companies that was fooling around with making 
hobbyist computers. So, you know, pretty big player in that early hobbyist space. Garland kind of takes him under his wing a little bit and tells him what this is all about. And he comes home with a Chromemco computer. A year later, he goes back again. This time he comes home with an MSI computer. We haven't really talked about pre-Trinity computers, mostly because there were very few games on them, so it's a little more tangential to our topic. But the MSI was the first computer that was really targeted at businesses. It was incredibly primitive. I mean, it's not something that businesses could really do much with. Far more primitive than the Trinity. I'm not talking about using VisiCalc on this sucker. It was the first computer that was really targeted at businesses. It was an Altair clone. And it was, for a brief period of time, the most successful computer company on the market, kind of in these pre-Trinity days. So he comes home with an MSI, which is even more advanced than the Chromemco computer that he had brought home the year before. So he's like, wow, this is moving fast. There is opportunity here, and there is opportunity here sooner rather than later. So he decides, because this is just the kind of guy he is, he decides that he's going to go to Hokkaido University and learn how to program. At this point, he's got a business. So he brings his brother in. He has a younger brother, Hiroshi. And he brings Hiroshi Kudo in to look after his business, his ham radio whatnot business, while he goes back to school and learns programming just because. So he can get involved with this emerging scene that's very interesting to him because he is an electronics hobbyist. So in 1978, he's learned how to program. He's now also been exposed to the pet and the apple. He's bought one of each. Clearly, his business is doing okay. (laughs) Obviously, if he can afford two of these fairly expensive import computers. And in 1978, he founds another company, Hudson Soft. I may have heard of them. I believe you've played some Bomberman in your day, sir. I may have gone adventuring on some islands. Yes, indeed. So this is the beginning of Hudson Soft. Right here, this is what we're building up to. They were probably the very first real computer game publisher in Japan. I mean, 1978 is very early. Most companies aren't coming onto the scene until more like 1980, 1981. I mean, StarCraft isn't founded until 79. Falcom hasn't been founded yet. There may be a few random people putting a few random games out. But this here, this is the first real computer game company in Japan. Later, of course, which is beyond the scope of this episode, but later they become the first third-party developer on the Nintendo Entertainment System. So they make that leap. They're a company that over time pays less and less attention to the computer side of things and more and more attention to other side of things. But they came along at the perfect time because this is right in the period where companies like Sharp and Panasonic, some of the electronics companies in Japan, are starting to put together their first primitive kind of hobbyist computers that are homegrown. And they need software. And there's this wonderful trained software company willing to provide me software. Exactly. So Hudson does a lot of bundling. And as we talked about in our last Broderboond episode, bundling is where the money is. Have some hardware. Have some software. It's all good. So Hudson Soft quickly becomes a very important player in this kind of nascent Japanese software scene. I don't think any of their early games are particularly significant from a global perspective. I mean, 
we're going to have, maybe should have said this up front, but we're going to have some barriers with the language, because I don't speak Japanese, in terms of identifying what early games in Japan are truly significant. So this isn't, for the most part, so much about what early games were there out there. It's more about how did these infrastructures form? How did these companies form? And how did they all interconnect to create an industry? Well, we sort of said that when we're saying that this episode is going to be a large, broad scope. And we have mentioned before, neither of us do obviously know any Japanese. So our knowledge is whatever's been gracefully translated over to us or the entertaining hack job that is Google Translate. Yes. Good old Google Translate. You get the gist, but not the nuance, if you're lucky. So Hudson Soft is the first publisher. But at this point, how do you get your software to the people? He's doing bundling. But one thing that the country doesn't have yet is very robust distribution. Now, Japan being much smaller than, say, the United States, robust distribution isn't quite as important there as it would be here. Still, if you're going to get any kind of economy of scale going and get this more mainstream, you're going to need distributors. And that is where our other early U.S.-focused magnate comes in. And that is Masayoshi Son. Son is actually not native Japanese. His family actually immigrated from Korea. His grandparents did. This would have been during the period of time when Korea was still occupied by Japan, I believe, which is not a pleasant period in Korean history. The Koreans are not happy with the Japanese, and there's still a huge amount of tension between Japan and Korea to this day because of what happened during the occupation and the way that the Japanese, uh, at least from the Korean perspective, have not owned up to all the terrible things that happened during that occupation. That's a whole political area that we're not going to take sides on. I just want to point all of that out because it's remarkable that somebody with that background could rise so high. But it's probably because he had that background that he had a kind of more cosmopolitan upbringing. What do you mean by cosmopolitan upbringing? Well, a more international upbringing, because at age 16, he actually moves to California. The family moves to California. And he finishes high school in California. And then he goes to Berkeley, where he both majored in economics, but also studied computer science because he was very interested in this emerging field. He's particularly fascinated with microprocessors. So in 1980, he gets a business plan together to do a portable language translator. Kind of funny since we were just talking about Google Translate. Believe me, if Google Translate can't do this very well, the brief fad for portable translators that emerged at the very beginning of the 1980s did an even worse job. But this was kind of his entree. He got some people together in California to do a prototype, and then he went to Japan and sold Sharp on creating it. So he's got this kind of international thing going on because he's working with Americans and working with Japanese. He kind of straddles both worlds. After that, he decided to form a publishing company, a game publishing company, software publishing company called Unison World, which was actually in America. That was in America, not in Japan. But after he got some experience with that, in 1981, he moved back to Tokyo. And when he moved back to Tokyo, he decided he would get into distribution. 
and that's when he founded the company called SoftBank. SoftBank is a huge company in Japan today. I'm not sure if you're familiar with SoftBank at all. The name rings a vague bell, but I couldn't say specifically anything that they've done. Well, that's because most of what they do is invest. Masayoshi Son has his fingers in many, many technological pies and has been very successful investing SoftBank into the right places. Now, bank in this case does not mean bank. I mean, when I say they're investing, I don't mean that they're an investment bank. The idea of SoftBank is that it's software and he's taking all the software and he's banking all the software and then selling the software on. So don't think of it as like Chase. From the money he made through distribution, he did invest in more and more companies and all of this. And so he's become a prominent investor, but not because SoftBank is actually a bank. Bank in the computer sense of we have banks of software. We're selling it to you, the consumer. One of his first targets to work with SoftBank was Hudsonsoft. So at this time, Hudsonsoft was one of the largest computer game companies. And so he's getting good, solid product that's done well. And then he turns around and he makes a deal with the company, the retail organization that's selling roughly 10% of all software in Japan, a company called Joshin Denki, and makes a deal to stock their shelves with his software. So he's right in the middle, and he's got a powerful company in production, and he's got a powerful company in retail. So that kind of cements the business taking off, and SoftBank is very important in the growth of the Japanese computer industry in this time period, because now there's a big, powerful distributor in Japan. And I mean, he takes a big portion of that Japanese computer software market. And when I say big, we're talking about roughly 70% by 1985. Now remember, kids, in Japan, it's sort of a different space there. Whenever a company wins within an ecosystem, they dominate it unless there's a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've talked before about soft sell a couple of times in the United States. Soft sell was probably the most powerful U.S. computer game, computer software distributor in the early days during the same period that SoftBank is growing. And the founders of SoftCell would have probably sold their firstborns to get the kind of market share that SoftBank had. I mean, this is a whole nother level than what you see in the West. That's the professional ecosystem. Let's step back again and take a look at the hobbyist ecosystem. Because the hobbyist ecosystem, as we're going to see, is about to kind of collide with the more professional ecosystem. We talked about how you had the early stores, StarCraft, Falcom. We'll come back to them. We talked about the Nikon, talked about the computer clubs. Now that you've got all of these people doing this, now that you've got all these people making programs, where are they going with these programs? Obviously, some of them are being published, like Yoshio Kia, the auto mechanic that is publishing through Falcom. But not everybody can get in with a publisher. So you get the exact same situation that you get in the United States and in the United Kingdom. You get people submitting games to magazines, type-in listings. They do type-in listings just like in the United States. Like I said, I think it's more college students in Japan, more college age than it is high school age, but it's, it's the exact same idea. There are a few of them. Probably the first one, if it wasn't the very first, 
it at least was the first important one. And I think it was probably the very first. I just can't be positive because with Language Bear and everything, I have to readily admit I don't have quite as much knowledge on the Japan side of things as I would have for the United States or even the United Kingdom. But the very first one was called I.O. I slash O, input output. <laughs> Makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was started by an individual named Masaki Hoshi. Hoshi was working for a technical documentation company, a company that would publish technical manuals, essentially. So again, this is somebody that worked with technology, but also worked in publishing. That kind of makes sense, right? He kind of knows what's going on in the technology world, but he also has experience with publishing. So in 1976, he starts I.O. because he can see that this hobbyist market is starting to emerge. There are enough people starting to clamor for computer information in Japan that he feels that it can sustain a magazine. It grew incredibly quickly, probably even more quickly than he thought. I mean, he started this as a part-time thing. I mean, he didn't quit his day job to do I.O. First issue, 3,000 copies. Second issue, 6,000 copies. Third issue, 12,000 copies. Obviously, he doesn't keep doubling forever, but in the beginning, he's literally doubling his subscriber base with every issue. I mean, he's coming along at just the right time when people are looking for this. It's a hobbyist magazine, so it's not really reviewing software. It's program listings. It's type-in listings. It's here's some of the cool new stuff that's out there, just kind of showing people what's around. It's very popular, and by the time that third issue's out, it's doing so well, he decides he can quit his job and run this thing full-time. Of course, this magazine attracted all sorts of attention from hobbyists who wanted to be a part of it, not just submitting programs, but also writing articles. So he kept his overhead very low by having you know, the contribution be freelance, and there were plenty of people willing to work freelance and write these articles. One of those individuals was a fellow named Katsuhiko Nishi, who went by K for short, or goes by, he's still alive, K Nishi. He was a college student at Waseda University who was very interested, as so many of these enthusiasts were, in this emerging computer scene. He discovered IO Magazine, and he became one of the regular contributors to this magazine, along with another friend of his named Akio Gunji. The two of them became big contributors. He became so obsessed with it that he decided to drop out of school, which is a huge huge no-no in Japan. You complete your college education in Japan. Then if you want to go off and do something irresponsible, maybe mom and dad will be a little unhappy, but at least you have your education. I mean, education is important here. It's far more important in Japan. So that's, that was a pretty bold move to, to drop out of school. He drops out of school to work more closely with Hoshi on IO. At this point, the story takes a rather controversial turn. Kei Nishi portrays himself as a founder of IO Magazine. Wait a minute. Yes. No, he does. If, if you look at articles that are out there online, and many of them will say that he founded IO, that he was a university student that dropped out of university to found IO Magazine. 
and that he went on from there to found another magazine called ASCII, the character set, of course. Mm-hmm. ASCII. Well, according to Mr. Hoshi, who appears to be the real founder of IO Magazine, what happened is Nishi and, and Gunji, they started hanging around. They started kind of learning the ropes, figuring out how IO was run, didn't have publishing experience, worked their way into Hoshi's good graces. And then when Hoshi had to be out of town for an extended period of time to go to a wedding, they ran the magazine in his absence because he trusted them. You know, he'd become familiar with them. He trusted them. Well, while Hoshi was gone, this is according to Hoshi. Nishi doesn't say this, but it's one of those stories that feels, I don't see why someone would make this up, especially since even more so than in our culture and Japanese culture, it's very poor form to go around making things up about other people. So I think this is probably true. They told all of the regular contributors and subscribers and everything that IO Magazine would be moving to new premises and gave them the new address that they could submit things to. Then, after they'd had time to get that word out, they founded their magazine, ASCII, at the new address that they gave everybody. Oh, dear. <laughs> now, IO survived. IO continued. <laughs> but that was kind of a, uh, oh, dear kind of situation. That's what we colloquially call a beep move. <laughs> yes. It was the beginning of one of the most important Japanese computer game companies and computer software companies, ASCII Corporation. Started with the magazine, branched out into other publishing. And then our good friend Keinishi, while he was taking a trip to the United States, met a guy named Bill Gates. He also never did anything except make a foundation or something. <laughs> you know, they're kind of kindred spirits. I mean, their demeanors are very different. Keinishi is far more kind of humble appearing and soft spoken in public. And Bill Gates, I mean, he's, he's changed some now. But in his early days, Bill Gates was the very much the obnoxious kind of person <laughs> that didn't like dealing with the media and, and keeping up appearances and all of that. He's changed since, but I'm just talking about the early days. They had the same ruthless drive to dominate. They had the same anything we need to do to get ahead kind of mentality. And so they really bonded, really, really got close to each other. ASCII Corporation became the kind of official Microsoft representative in Japan. It was kind of dual-hatted as ASCII slash Microsoft Japan. I mean, it wasn't part of Microsoft, but... For all intents and purposes, if you were dealing with Microsoft in Japan, you were dealing with ASCII Corporation. Nishi was very keen on the market growing because he wanted to grow his own business. And the only way he can do that is if the larger market grows, just like Bill Gates recognized when the IBM opportunity came a knocking that, OK, this is an opportunity I should take. Nishi recognized that he needed somebody big getting into the business. Sharp was in. Hitachi was in. I think Casio was in. They were mostly doing hobbyist-style computers, though. Stuff that wasn't fully assembled, something that only a, a true specialist could get involved with. Nishi decided that he needed to get the biggest Japanese computer company, talking institutional computing, involved. And, of course, that was NEC. Now, Nishi takes credit for a lot of things. 
he even essentially takes credit for Microsoft's success because he claims that he was visiting Bill when the whole IBM thing came about and was the one that convinced Bill that he should go get an operating system and do the operating system for IBM, even if he was around at the time. I doubt he was the one that convinced Bill Gates to do that. I don't think Bill Gates needed an outside (laughs) provocateur to get him to do that. But the point I'm trying to make is Kay she likes taking credit for things. So he claims that he convinced NEC to enter the microcomputer market. I've seen in other sources that NEC was already exploring the market and already was looking to go into that market, but that Nishi did involve himself in that project and helped guide what the final product would look like. Basically, ASCII and Microsoft partnered with NEC to create the PC-8001, the first kind of real, serious, non-hobbyist computer for all intents and purposes that was released in Japan and a real turning point for the growth of the local market. NEC would remain the dominant computer company throughout the kind of so-called proprietary period of Japanese computing when you didn't have compatible standards with stuff going on in the IBM and PC compatible market because of the differing needs of resolution for text for katakana <laughs> in, instead of, uh, you know, just ABCDEFG, Roman alphabet. So that was a real turning point, the, the launch of the PC-8001, which was in September 1979. A couple years later, 1981, they released another series, the PC-6000 series, to serve as a lower-cost, more home-centric computer. I mean, people used PC-8000s in their home, too, but it's kind of PC-8000 was meant more to be a business computer. PC-6000 was meant to be more of a home computer. At this point, ASCII Corporation is largely a publishing operation, like books and stuff. They have publishing divisions. By this time, computer software is becoming more and more prevalent in Japan. And computer games are becoming more and more prevalent in Japan. But the quality is real hit or miss. Real hit or miss. Because it's still hobbyist. There's a lot of small fly-by-night publishers that don't know what they're doing. There's people that are out there just that aren't any good that just throw their stuff in Akihabara and people buy it and it ends up not working right. It's uh, cassettes. So even if somebody is making a good product, if they don't have a good tape duplicator, maybe half the run that they make is busted. So it's a market that is becoming broad in scope, but it's not very professional. And I I mean, a good place to look is, again, back with our old friend Yoshio Kia. Kia, we talked about in our Origins Japanese RPG episode because he was so instrumental He released not quite the first, but one of the very first RPGs in Japan, Panorama Island. We talked about that game. It's significant because it was early, but even Kia himself says that it's really not much of a game. (laughs) Uh, You know, it, it was kind of hard and kind of finicky, and a lot of it didn't make sense. It was kind of ripping off Ultima. Of course, remember, he's publishing for Falcom, which is a Apple distributor. So they're aware of Ultima, because that's an Apple game, Apple II game. It's kind of an Ultima ripoff, but kind of a weird Ultima ripoff, and and not everything works very well. I mean, most of the early games were very similar to that. 
Another company that was formed in this period that becomes very big later is uh, Koei, is formed during this period. Koei is founded in 1978, not as a computer game company, but as a die maker, because the Arakawa family that founds the company have been involved in the die trade for a long time. Now, what kind of die are we talking here? Dyes for uh, colors. D-Y-E. D-Y-E-S. Not flexographic dies, not rolling dies where we play in our JRPGs. Mm-hmm. The color die that we need to make our clothes look pretty. But the son of the die maker, Yoichi Arikawa, becomes very interested in this kind of nascent computer market. And so two years later, in 1980, when the die business is not going so well, He completely transforms Koei into a computer software company. And he makes some of the first role-playing games in Japan as well. Again, he sees Ultima and he's emulating Ultima. Again, his early products are kind of primitive. There's really not much to them. The quality level of this early stuff is just not that great. So they're taking these first steps, but they're only getting so far. Well, Kei Nishi at ASCII has ambitions to be much better than that, and so do his subordinates. ASCII is the company that first brings wizardry to Japan in 1981, and we've talked in our JRPG episode how influential wizardry was. You know, some of these very first RPGs that are being made in Japan are really essentially pure Ultima, not clones, but Ultima derivatives. ASCII brings wizardry in, which is a big deal. And then the head of the second publishing division of ASCII, an individual named Mitsuhiro Matsuda, decides that he wants to do something about this situation. He wants to create real software, really good software with really professional packaging that the company can be proud of and that can actually be high-quality software. You know if you're buying an ASCII game that it is going to be top-notch quality and you don't have to worry about it being a dud. And by doing so, he hopes to raise the standards of the entire industry. So that's what he does. He decides to create this series called the AX series. I don't know why they called it AX, but it's multiple games by different people. And, you know, it's just a a sequencing AX1, AX2, AX3, like D&D modules or whatever. They're not linked to each other. They're not sequels. They're all different types of games, but it's just calling attention to the fact that they're all part of the same high-quality software load. So he decides that he's going to put a group together in order to make these games. In order to do so, he goes back to our favorite go-to people in the early days, the University Computer Clubs. University computer clubs played a really big role in this time period because they were obviously bright kids because they were university and they were really dedicated to this new field. And so in this era when games are exploding in popularity in Japan, I'm not just talking computer games, I mean video games in general, we're in the era of space invaders now. Everybody's kind of scrambling to figure out what the next big thing is going to be. The professional arcade companies are too, and they are turning to these university computer clubs. The best example of this is the creation of a very important game called Hainankyo Alien, which is not a game that rings out in the United States at all. 
but has a very important lineage, as we'll see as we kind of walk through this. Hyankyo Alien came about because the publication Weekly Asahi was running a contest to try to come up with the next great video game idea. We're talking arcade games here. This was when the Space Invaders boom was starting to cool off. We talked about that. And everyone was trying to figure out what would be next. So they went around to several different university clubs and organizations and asked the computer enthusiasts to see if they could come up with game ideas. One of the places that they went was the Theoretical Sciences Group at Tokyo University, where there was a group of enthusiasts working together. And they didn't really have a good idea. I mean, they didn't really submit anything good when the magazine came around. But it got them to thinking, and they got to thinking, well, could we come up with a really cool game idea? They started thinking about what kind of game they could do. At the time, you kind of had what were called the snake games. They're still called snake today, named after literally the game snake on the Nokia phones back in the 90s. But they actually had an earlier origin than that in the arcades in the 1970s when uh, Gremlin Industries created a game called Blockade. And in the snake game, basically, you have a cursor and that cursor is drawing lines on the screen. It's moving around and looks almost vaguely snake-like. And you kind of have two dueling cursors that are drawing these lines. And the object is to get your opponent to crash because those lines stay on the screen. I think you're, you're familiar with this kind of gameplay, right? Yeah, I am. Sort of like the Tron light cycle that you've seen back in the day. It's that very similar concept, very popular arcade concept that is reiterated in many, many different forms. Exactly. So they thought that they could do a derivation of that, not a pure snake game, but something that was kind of derived from that. They came up with this idea where you're in a house full of cockroaches and you have to lay down traps to catch the cockroaches. Well, it didn't work very well because it was just kind of set in this wide-open living room. That didn't make for very good gameplay, so they decided, well, what if they revised the playing field to look like a Go board? So you have individual squares that are creating obstacles within the screen, and then you have to navigate around these squares in order to catch the cockroaches. Well, at this point, the movie Alien had just come out. Alien was such a huge influence on several games that appeared during this period because a big portion of that movie was about trying to track this alien through the bowels of the Nostromo, the ship, before it kills everybody. It translates very well into a maze game. It translates very well into a Pac-Man-style game where the maze becomes the corridors and you are trying to catch the monster but if the monster sees you first and catches you, then, then you're dead. You know, you have to kind of trick it and trap it. Alien kind of really influences this idea with a lot of different people. So one of the members of the group saw the movie Alien at this point and decided, well, wouldn't it be great if we changed this from cockroaches to aliens? Then, since it was no longer going to be cockroach traps, because you can't catch an alien in a cockroach trap, that would just be silly. They changed the traps to pits. So it's a game where you're moving around this maze. Obviously, we'll put it in the show notes. And you're digging holes to trap the aliens. And this gets released in the arcades in in Japan because it is such a good idea. It's also released on computer platforms. 
What was the name of it again? Hyankyo Alien. H-E-I-A-N-K-Y-O Alien. Hands the ancient name for Tokyo. So it effectively translates as Tokyo Alien. <laughs> Something like that. I think the conceit is kind of that this grid is creating an urban environment that you're navigating around in. So that game never made it to the United States at all, I don't think. Or if it did, it didn't make any impact. But you see, it's a game where you're running around digging holes to trap things. We've heard about that before. So Universal takes this top-down game, turns it into a side-view game, and instead of navigating around a series of mazes, you're navigating around a series of platforms with ladders connecting them, digging holes to trap aliens. And that's Space Panic, the first real platforming game, the beginning of that whole genre that becomes so important. It actually goes back to this maze game, because all that uh, Universal did is take a top-down game and turn it into a side-view game. And boom, you have the platforming genre. The arcade companies were really going to these students at these university clubs to come up with game ideas. Taito, the creators of Space Invaders, did the exact same thing. They went and recruited the University of Tokyo Microcomputer Club, several members of it, to do the exact same thing for them and come up with game ideas that they might publish. One of the more interesting things that came out of there, this is a bit of a side thing, but one of them actually created what is really the first stealth game. Most people aren't aware that this game exists. Most people, if they point to the first stealth game, point to something like Castle Wolfenstein. A stealth game being one where you have to avoid being seen while maneuvering around a space. It's not just avoiding the enemy, it's also avoiding the line of sight of the enemy. One of the members of this group, the uh, UTMC, was in a 7-Eleven one day. And at this time, convenience stores were a very new concept in Japan. They were brand new. No one had really seen a convenience store before, so it was kind of a novelty. He was in this convenience store and he noticed that the aisles were really narrow and the shelves were really tall. And he was thinking to himself, you know, it would probably be really easy for somebody to shoplift from this store. He wasn't a bad boy. He wasn't thinking of doing it himself. He was just like, wow, this seems like it would be really easy to shoplift from. And then he thought, you know, that would make a really good game concept. So he created a game called Mambiki Shonen, where you play a shoplifter. You're moving through the aisles and you have to steal stuff off of the shelves while avoiding the store clerk's gaze who's trying to find you and stop you. It was never formally published. Taito rejected it. But it was, in 1980, published in a magazine as a type-in. It was published in Ram Magazine. So by being published in early 1980, that probably makes it the very first stealth game ever created. It also served as the basis for a Taito arcade game. So Taito rejected the game. They didn't pay him for it. But then they created an arcade game based on the, the loop in the third anime, which the gameplay bore a striking resemblance. I don't think you'll necessarily... I can't remember if I saw on YouTube. There may not be any footage of Mambiki Shunin, but there might be. I can't remember if I saw a YouTube video or not. But at the very least, we'll put loop in the third arcade game in, in the show notes, because that should be out there, and you can see that this basic gameplay type, it was really the beginning of stealth gameplay. These university clubs kind of knew what was going on. So this guy at ASCII Corporation that I mentioned a while back, 
Mitsuhiro Matsuda went out and recruited this University of Tokyo Microcomputer Club, several of the members of it, and said, why don't you come work at ASCII and make games for us, and then we'll publish these games. And that became the AX series. And this was really the first truly well-done, really professional software in Japan. I mean, for our purposes, the individual games, for the most part, aren't so important because, uh, you know, this is not stuff that was available in the West. Some of them, I think, are on YouTube. You'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of it on YouTube even. But the point is, is you have really good software from a really reputable company coming out for the first time. It's the beginning of the process of professionalizing this industry a little bit. These games start coming out in like 1981 or so. That's the time period we're talking about. You know, according to some of the AX people, they've been interviewed, actually, uh, a couple of them in, in English by John Skispaniak in his Untold History of Japanese Game Developers series. They really credit it for kind of starting to drive these real fly-by-night shady operations out of business. I mean, now, if you wanted to hang in this industry, you actually had to put out something that was good because you actually had real competition now that was also really good. It kind of upped the game for everybody. Raise the bars, so to speak. Exactly. We're kind of in the 81-82 period. I said that the end point for this is the year 1985. And the reason I say that is that is really when you get not just kind of more professional people involved, but you get them involved in some really successful companies and they sell a lot of copies of, of their games. One of these is directly related to this AX series. There were a whole series of these programmers that created this AX series and then also created a AY series of games as well. A group of these individuals that were working on these games decided in about 1984 that they wanted to go off on their own and no longer do this for ASCII and let ASCII reap most of the rewards for this but actually go out and form their own company and keep more of the profits. The kind of ringleaders of this group were the Miyagi brothers, Yoichi and Takishi. They weren't part of the original group that did uh, the early AX games, but they came on later and were also creating games for, you know, I think the AY series, but they were creating games for this series. And they got a couple of the other guys together and were like, let's go do this ourselves. So they all left ASCII and they founded a company together called Game Arts. Very important. Ever played Grandia? No, but I've heard of it. Game Arts. Ever played Lunar? Ditto. Game Arts. It became a very, very prominent RPG company in Japan on Sega and Sony systems. But they got their start with this first kind of professional outfit, this part two outfit at ASCII Corporation. One of the people that went along with them was a programmer named Kohai Ikeda. Before he left to form Game Arts, Ikeda-san co-created a game called Theseus that was basically a clone of the Atari arcade game Major Havoc from 1983. It was a vector game. Didn't do very well in the United States because A, it came out right when the arcade market was collapsing, 
And B, it was also a period of time where arcade operators were sick of vector monitors because they broke down all the time. So it didn't do particularly well in the United States, but it kind of fascinated a group of people at ASCII. And so a couple of them created this game Theseus that was essentially a clone of the on-foot maze portions of Major Havoc. So when it came time to create the first game at Game Arts, Ikeda decided to create a game that was once again very similar to Major Havoc, just like Theseus was, but also enhanced it by taking some elements from other games. There was a shooting game very similar to Xevious. Remember Xevious, we've talked about before, was a hugely popular scrolling shooter in Japan. There was a game very similar to Xevious on computers called Exoa, E-X-O-A, that had a spaceship flying around shooting at stuff. There was also Masanobu Indo's follow-up to Xevious, Grobda, G-R-O-B-D-A, which was a tank game, kind of an update on the, the Atari tank format. The tank in it, we can put this in the show notes, fired a very distinct kind of laser beam that was kind of distinctive. So he basically took the basic gameplay from Theseus, which, as we'll recall, came from Major Havoc. He then added the ability to change from a mecha, which was your primary form of going through the level, to a spaceship that was very similar to the spaceship in Exoa. And the mech fired uh, a laser beam, kind of the laser beam in the game was very similar to the laser beam in Grobda, or however it's pronounced. And so these were kind of the three major influences on the game. So he created a name that took from all three of these. He called the game Texter, T-H from Theseus, E-X from Exoa, and then the D-E-R comes from Grobda. It's, it's kind of not perfect, but basically the game is named after these three games, and it's named Texter. We would pronounce it in the U.S. because it's T-H. We'd probably pronounce it Thexter, but with the way the Japanese pronounced it, it's Texter. This game actually made it over to the United States a couple of years later because Sierra Online brought over a couple of Game Arts' games. So this one's known in the States as well, but it's particularly known in Japan because it was just, we'll put it in the show notes, of course, it was a great action shooting game that was just very smooth, very well designed, very good graphics for the time. It had just this kind of extra level of polish even over what had been going on in the AX series and the AY series previously. And so Texter is kind of considered to be kind of the dividing point, the game that really separated this hobbyist industry from a more professional-looking industry. This was the kind of game, even though it wasn't on the Famicom, that you could almost kind of imagine being on the Famicom and being kind of cool. I think Squaresoft actually did port it, actually, to the... Famicom a year or so later. I mean, it actually made it onto the system. That's how good it was. It was actually good enough to be on that console. So that's kind of considered a watershed moment. The other watershed moment of 1985, there are really two, is the maturation of the RPGs. So we talked about this a little bit in the context of our JRPG episode, so I don't want to get into this too much because we've already talked about it. In the same vein, we didn't really talk about Enix in this episode. We didn't talk about programming contests, how another way that these early companies like Enix recruited programmers was to hold contests in the magazines and then publish the games of the winners. We talk about that whole aspect of the Japanese industry in our Square Enix episode, so I don't really want to get involved with that again here. 
Falcom, we talked about some of the early action RPGs they did. We talked about Kia a little bit, but I have a little more information now that allows us to refine that a little bit more and take it a little further than we did in that episode. So I talked about how Kia was an auto mechanic that discovered computers and discovered the Falcom computer shop and then started making games for them. But his early games like Panorama Island, which we did talk about to some length in our RPG episode, were really kind of primitive. He was doing games in basic. He was looking at what was out there on the market, looking at what he thought was cool, and then just kind of adapting that while adding in some of his own special touches in basic. He was always kind of looking for the next kind of cool and interesting thing, looking to blend genres and whatnot. And that's what really led him to the action RPG concept. We talked about how Dragon Slayer, along with the arcade game Tower of Druaga and the other computer game by Teen Esoft, Hydlide, were also important to the creation of this action RPG, this kind of genre that Secret of Mana is in, and one could even argue Legend of Zelda is kind of in, even though it's not a full RPG. I didn't have much information on Dragon Slayer then, so we kind of focused much more on what was going on in Hydlide and Druaga and much less on what was going on with Dragon Slayer. I can't say that I have a lot more information now than I did then. It's only a little bit more, but the third volume of The Untold History of Japanese Game Developers by John Suspaniak has come out since we did that episode, and he did interview Kia. And while there is a frustrating lack of information on how he came up with some of these games. There's just enough to speak about it a little bit. Basically, he became very interested in an action game called Alphos, which was published by Enix. And it was basically a Xevious clone. It was essentially the same kind of gameplay as the arcade game Xevious. Alphos is out there on the net. I, I saw it the other day, so I know we can put that in the show notes. It wasn't so much the gameplay that inspired Kia, but just the fact that here was a PC game that ran really smoothly and really fast and was really action-packed, which in the early days, you didn't always have programs of that quality. So he was like, I think I can do a fast action game like that. I think I can figure out how he scrolls the screen and how he makes everything kind of action-y. And so he, he just takes that concept of why don't I do an action game? and then applies it to the genre he already knows very well, the RPG. And that's how you get the action RPG. That's how you get Dragon Slayer. It's not that he was adapting any particular RPG or any particular game. It was just, let's do a fast action game because now I want to figure out how he did that so well. But let's apply it to a genre I know, which is the RPG. And that's how you get Dragon Slayer. That's how that occurs. It's still in basic. It's still what he considers to be a fairly primitive game. It still was a game that wasn't very successful because kind of the quality level and the, uh, the balance level of it was somewhat uneven. But at this point, Falcom is becoming big enough that it's actually hiring in these people. So Kia is becoming a full-time employee of Falcom. He's not just this guy submitting random stuff anymore. After he does Dragon Slayer, he's exposed to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons for the first time. He never played D&D in his life, but he read the books, and he was kind of blown away by the variety in terms of magical items and monsters and all of this, and the statistical detail. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to, take a, I'm going to do a game where I build on what I kind of learned making Dragon Slayer, 
and I'm going to make this a far more professional and polished game. I'm going to move on from basic to machine language or assembly or whatever. And I'm going to incorporate the same kind of statistical rigor and variety that is found in advanced Dungeons and Dragons. He was really inspired by that. He plotted everything out in advance. He did a design document this time, which I don't think he'd ever done before. I mean, we're getting professional here, right? He decides, okay, how many rooms can I have? How many items can I have? How many monsters can I have? And he sketches that all out in advance, basically inspired by D&D. Once he has that whole design document in place, then he goes ahead and implements it. And the game that he implements is called Xanadu. It's another action RPG. It's a huge hit because it is so much bigger. It is so much more impressive than any game of that type that has really come out on Japanese computers before. And so it really strikes a chord. It sells 400,000 units, 1985. This is a period of time where an American company feels they've hit the lotto if they sell 250,000 units, and 100,000 units is considered a massive hit. They sell 400,000 units of that game. On PC in Japan. Right. It's really the game that puts Falcom on the map, and along with Texter, it's really the game that puts the Japanese industry on the map. So at this point, with the dual publications of Texter and Xanadu, you really are to the point where you've left this proto-hobbyist phase where sometimes the programmers are submitting games through contests, sometimes the programmers are just fooling around in department stores, sometimes the programmers are being recruited from university clubs, to we have a professional industry with lots of professional companies, and they're making really slick professional games. You know, it's not as big of market as the Famicom market, as the console market, and as the console market in Japan gets bigger and bigger in subsequent years, the computer game industry gets smaller and smaller. But still, you wouldn't have the action RPGs. You wouldn't have Dragon Quest, as we discussed in our RPG episode. You wouldn't have a lot of elements. The very first platform game was essentially an arcade variation on a computer game. The very first stealth game. I'm not sure how wide the influence was, but that stealth game, too, was transformed into the arcade game loop in the third. Very first stealth game, the beginnings of the very first platform game, the very beginnings of the JRPG, they all come out of this nascent Japanese industry. And so that's why, even though these are games that nobody in the United States hardly has ever heard of, and even fewer people in the United States have ever played... It exerted a profound influence on the worldwide video game industry. All from hobbyists and interconnected individuals and companies that we've talked about before playing around with computers in Japan. Absolutely. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up all that we can cover about Japanese computers. Now we get to go into episode 75, the 75th episode. Oh, wow. And we'll talk about... Guns. Guns. But not guns that shoot bullets. Guns that shoot light. Or guns that react when light is shot at them. We are going to talk about the grand history of the light gun. Obviously, largely as it pertains to the video game genre, but we will also trace its roots to the before time, to the long, long ago 
because light guns were something that existed before the first video games. They were incorporated into the arcades far before video games were in anyone's mind and then were present on the very, very first video game ever created, the Magnavox Odyssey. So it has a proud lineage. Yeah, and we've talked about it before in other episodes, so it would be kind of interesting to see all of that brought together, the technology and how it's evolved in its youth up to the modern day. Exactly. All right. Episode 75, Gunning for Light. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons Attribution License.